If you have your Bibles, go to Acts 17. I had a seminary teacher tell the class one time, when you preach, there's always three messages. There's the one you prepared, the one you preached, and the one you wish you would have preached. Uh, last week, uh, after I finished, I was like, we should have just read Acts 17. We should have done this last week, our first week in First Thessalonians. But since we read the whole book last week, some part of me felt like, I don't know, we're going to read too much, as if that's a problem to read too much of the Bible. So thinking back, I was like, we should just read Acts 17. This is the story of Paul, Silas, going to Thessalonica. Uh, so we're going to start there, then we're going to dive into First Thessalonians. We're going to cover uh, roughly five verses this morning there, so we'll be, it'll all be fine. All right, first, or Acts 17, start there, verse 1. We'll read just uh, nine, ten verses, and just a couple points to bring up, and, and then we'll dive into First Thessalonians. Now when they, that's Paul, Silas, traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the, the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Okay, so, so just a couple of thoughts here from Acts 17, giving us the context going into to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, first thing, what do we see? Verse 4, we see the, well, before that, I guess, he goes to the synagogue. He, he, he explains to them that this Jesus who has come is the Christ. That's a New Testament word for Messiah. So he's saying here, this one who has come, he's the one you've been waiting for in the Old Testament. Verse 4, we see what? We see some believe that some would be referring to Jews. And then he says a large number of Greeks and, and a number of the leading women. Okay, so it's interesting because just one, one chapter previous, Acts 16, talks about the, the birth of the church in Philippi. And the birth of the church in Philippi, he gives us uh, someone's name, Lydia, the seller of purple. So we have a name. Uh, he tells us people's occupation. We have a Philippian jailer. And he tells us about a girl who is demon-possessed. Okay, so that was the start of a church in Philippi. Here, the start of the church is some Jews, more Greeks, and some women. And to me, it's just interesting, like, like God's at work using ordinary, normal people. And sometimes in the Bible, we get their name, and sometimes in the Bible, we don't get their name. We get this guy's name, who's Jason. Uh, they apparently met in his house. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more on that idea in, in a little bit. But here's the beginning of the church. Jews, Greeks, and leading women in the area. Verse 6, I just love this phrase. We're not going to necessarily talk a whole lot about it. But in verse 6, uh, they, they're, they're mad. And so they go get, the Jews go get the Roman authority and they complain. And what's the one that are complaints? That, that here's this Jason and what has he done? He's allowed these men who have upset the world. Like he's welcomed them into his house. Other parts of the New Testament, it would say that these men have turned the world upside down. Like what a cool thought what a cool way to be described right anyway verse 7 what was what was the crime that they're committing why are they going to be persecuted verse 7 they say there's another king king jesus and isn't it interesting 
Go all the way back to Matthew 2. There's going to be a bunch of baby boys killed. Why? Because there's another king that the, that the wise men would come and say, hey, we, we've seen his star. There's this king, and there's going to be a bunch killed. Jesus hangs on the cross. And what does it say on top of the cross? Like, this is what is done. Here's, here's his crime. The description of his crime is what? King of the Jews. Now the church is being persecuted. Why? Because they called Jesus king. I feel like in our context, uh, to call Jesus king is not really a big deal. Like if we said, hey, we believe Jesus is king. Like we have a president, but Jesus is a king. Like no one's really offended by that. And yet in their context to say Jesus is king, like that's going to be a big deal. That's going to bring persecution, which we'll talk here in just a second. Uh, but all that to say then, as Paul, you can flip over First Thessalonians now, but as Paul talks to this church in Thessalonica, I feel like there's going to be this, this thread, uh, this kind of theme of Jesus is king. And he's not necessarily going to say those phrases. He's not going to necessarily say it that bluntly. But I, we're going to get this picture, I think chapter 4, chapter 5, we have this picture of a king. Like we're going to, He's going to keep coming back to the fact that you are right. Jesus is king. Caesar's not. Okay, a couple of things I just want, some of them we just read, but I just want to remind ourselves of where we're at. Okay, first thing, it is a persecuted church. Right, like, like I feel like just human nature, we hear someone's story, uh, whatever it might be, uh, how they built their business, how they raised their kids, like whatever it is, and, and if they're doing a better job at it than we are, or it seems that they're successful, however you want to word that, we're real quick to say, yeah, but their circumstances are different than my circumstances. Their, their parents were different than my parents. Their initial capital to start that, whatever they started, was different than my, like, we're real quick to point out all the differences and how they're, like, if I had that opportunity, I would have made millions of dollars. If I had that opportunity, my kids would actually be obedient. Or if I had that opportunity, fill in the blank, I would have, right? And so we're real quick to, like, somehow make everyone's life better than ours if they seem to be doing well, okay? This church seems to be doing well, and yet it was birthed and is still present in this, when Paul writes this letter, a church that's being persecuted. So we know from history that, that a persecuted church is often a growing church. Like, we know that, and yet I don't think anybody would say, hey, you know what, uh, perfect church planning scenario, go find the place that's persecuted and put one there. So, so I just want us to understand, like, these are real people going through real persecution as this church is born and as this church is going to grow. Second, it's a young church. Uh, there are some people, Acts 17, Paul says for three weeks he meets in the synagogue and he preaches to them that Jesus is the Christ. There are some people who take that so literal that they think Paul was only there three weeks before they kicked him out. Right? So we're going to say it's a young church. This letter's written probably less than a year after he got kicked out of Thessalonica. Probably a couple months have gone by. Okay? I think he was probably there longer than three weeks, and we can talk about that if you want, but I think he was there longer than three weeks. But the, the, the existence of this church in Thessalonica is probably less than two years old. Okay, so they're persecuted, and they're young. Okay, if, if just human nature. If, if we started a church, and if we were to leave that church, and the church was young and persecuted, what would be our concern? Our concern is that it would probably fail. Right, so as we read this text, at some level, like Timothy goes out, he checks on the church, brings back a report to Paul, Paul writes this letter. But at some level, you can see that. Like Paul planted this church, he loves this church. Uh, him and Silas, Timothy have a special place in their heart for this church. And you're going to see a little bit of that in this, this first passage this morning. You're going to see a lot more in a couple weeks ahead of us. But it's this young church, it's a persecuted church, and it's a church that Paul, Timothy, and Silas love. Okay, so with that in mind, we're going to read the first five verses of First Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus, Saul, Venus, that's just another word for Silas, and Timothy. 
to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We're going to pick up the second half of verse 5 next week. Okay, so a couple of things just as we read. Who's writing this letter? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Right? They started the church. We just read that, Acts 6, 17. Okay, who's it written to? Okay, it's written to the church. Right? This isn't written to the elders, not written to just the leaders, not just written to the men, not just written to the women, not just written to kids or adults, like to, to the whole body that makes up the church in Thessalonica. Okay, like let's not lose sight of that. This is written to them. Okay, verse 2. Paul, speaking for them, says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Okay, so, so we kinda, we're kind of going to see more of this coming later in, in the letter. But here's this heart of Paul. What does he say? He says, whenever we think of you, uh, what our thoughts of you, we're always thankful for you. Like, we're thankful for this church. We're thankful for what God has done in our short period in Thessalonica. We're thankful for you. Thankful for the, the report that Timothy sends back. Like, we're thankful for the church. And so what does he do? Paul's thankful for the church. What does he do? Verse 2, he says, we pray for you. Always making mention of our prayers. Okay, this is what I find interesting. What we pray about often reveals what we love. It often reveals what we're thankful for. Every night we put our kids to bed, we pray with our kids, and, and the theme, every single night, the theme is, is somebody in our family. So on Monday we pray for these two families, uh, you know, aunts, uncles, grandma, grandpa, those types. Like, we pray for these families on Tuesday, like, every night of the week. Why? Because we're thankful and we love our family. Right? It's not hard. So, so when Paul says here, like, hey, we're praying for you always and we're thankful for you, like those two things go hand in hand, right? The more, uh, more thankful you are for somebody, the more you love them, the more you're probably going to pray for them. But we probably also know, hopefully from experience, but if not, I'll just tell you, the more you pray for somebody or the more you pray for a situation or circumstance, the more you become thankful for them and the more you love them. So Paul here in verse 2, like, I'm thankful for you. For God, what he's done, which, is, which means I'm going to pray for you, but we would know that the more he prays for you, the more he's going to be thankful and love this church. Right? And so just not, this isn't the point of the message. This is still introduction of Paul's letter. But at some point, like, like how do we pray for other people in this room? How do we think of other people in this room? Like, man, is it, would, if we were to write a letter to the church here, would we be like, wow, we're so thankful for you. We pray for you often. Let's keep going. Verse 3. In verse 3, there's going to be three uh, things that Paul's, he says they're constantly bearing in mind. Uh, when Paul thinks of this church, there's three things that he thinks of. Okay, let's just say what they are. Here we go. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Okay, so that's what Paul's saying. Like, when I think of you, this church in Thessalonica, I think of three things. Okay, now in the English, I mean, I'm using New American Standard. You're using a different translation. That's good. Uh, in, my, in this translation, it almost, it almost misses the point. Because if you were to say, from the New American Standard, what are the three things? If you could only say three words from verse 3, what would be the three words that you would say Paul's thankful for? And I would just look in the text, I would say work, labor, and steadfastness. And yet in the Greek, it's not, it wouldn't be those three words. In fact, if you were reading this in the Greek and you knew Greek, which I really don't, but, but in the Greek you would say these three words, faith, love, and hope. Like, that's the main issue here. 
And so if you have uh, NIV or a Christian Standard Bible, actually, I just checked in my boys. Uh, they have a, I don't even know what they're about, what's, uh, new revised Anyway, it's sort of like a reader's edition for kids. They, they actually got it. Like, of all the best ones I found, like, that was the one that got it. Uh, the picture would be this. Let me read what the NIV says. The NIV says, uh, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Uh, my boys, I should have wrote theirs down. I felt like it was even more so. But this is the picture, that you have this faith, and your faith has now produced works. You have this love, and this love has now gone out and done this labor. You have this hope, and, and a hope in Jesus, which we'll talk about, but you have this hope, and now that has produced steadfastness in you. And I feel like at a Western culture, American church, it's real easy to be like more work, more labor, more steadfastness. Like, that's us. Let's, let's pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and let's go do it. And Paul's not saying that. He's saying that as you would grow in faith, you're also going to have this work come out of you. As you grow in love, you're going to have this labor come out of you. As you grow in your hope, you're going to have more and more steadfastness or endurance. Okay, so let's just stop and talk about these. So, first one, your work of faith, or, or the fact that you have faith that is now producing works. Okay, so, so here's a question that we're not going to answer. Daniel can answer this in discussion group if you want. What works are we talking about? Like, what specific works are we talking about look like works of faith? I'm not going to answer that question. But what we are going to talk about is this idea of of we have faith that should be producing works. And we can just label it Christ-likeness. Okay? I remember being in high school and reading through the book of James. Got to James chapter 2. I don't know if you've ever experienced the first time you read James 2, but I don't ever remember hearing a message on it. I don't remember hearing much about it. And I read James 2, and James 2 would say that, that if you have faith, but you don't have works, your faith is dead. And I remember as a high schooler being taught it's grace and grace alone. And there's a chart of like grace plus works equals false teaching, like this whole thing in my brain. And I'm reading through James. I was like, whoa, like my first thought literally was, how is James in the Bible? Because my thought was he said it so clearly, like your works and your faith are so closely tied together that if you don't have the works, you don't have any faith. And I was like, I... And I didn't know what to do with it. And I was like this high school, I was kind of smart. And so people like looked up to me and thought I was, so I felt like I couldn't even ask a question. Like if I asked a question, like, can someone explain James 2? Because I don't get it. Like I would have been looked at like, what? You don't know. So I never asked a question. So I went for years and I read the book of James. I was like, this is good. This is good. Get to the second half of chapter two and just be like, yeah, maybe I'll skip over that. Like, I don't know what to do with it. Okay. Paul's saying the same thing though. He's saying he's looking at the church in Thessalonica. He's saying, I know you have faith. Why do I know that? Not because you said something, because the work that you're doing. Like, persecuted, young church, you have faith, and it's showing in your works. Okay, so, so for us, right, just let's take a step back and look at us. Either individually or corporately as a church. When's the last time that we would say, here's a work Here's an evidence. Here's something that's come out of our life that is full of faith. Right? This is church. Paul's saying, what is he? Beginning of verse 3? Constantly bearing in mind. Like, when I think of you, this is what I think about. These works that come from faith. Right? The second one, labor of love. Or, or you have this love that produces this labor. Okay? This word for love is agape. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a Greek word that you chose to do this. You chose to love this person. So it's not just that you have a warm feeling, butterflies in your stomach, however you kind of think love sounds like. Like it's none of those things. It's this choice. The word for labor, uh, again, just Greek to English. Maybe there's a better 
better translation than this one uh, for this, but the word labor just sounds a lot like work. Uh, the Greek word has a lot more of the feeling of struggle, has a lot more, f- like, there's the intensity to it. It has this toil. It, it's, it's, it's work, which I guess is labor, but there's struggle. It's, it's almost like in the series in Habakkuk, we talked about the wicked would disadvantage others for their own advantage, and the righteous would disadvantage themselves for other advantage. Like, that's kind of the idea here, this word labor. Like, like because you love God, because you love others, you're willing to disadvantage yourself. You're willing to, to give up your own comfort. You're willing to give up your own time. You're willing to give up your own resources so that you could love this person. I heard on a podcast recently, they talked about this word passion. It had nothing to do with church. It had nothing to do with the Bible. It had nothing to do with First Thessalonians. Uh, I don't even know how they got started on this passion topic. Uh, but the person that described the word passion, he says, it's not a feeling. He's like, you, you look at somebody and they get so angry because their team loses or, or my children, they get so angry because the video game didn't go their way, right? Like, and they're like, man, they're real passionate about that. And they started talking about this word passion. And according to this guy, so I'm just taking it from him, uh, according to this guy in his podcast, he said the word passion isn't a feeling as much as it's this idea that I'm willing to suffer for that. And so, so in my life, it's like I, I'm trying to teach uh, the ones that live in my household Video games aren't worth suffering for. Right? Like, there's a whole lot in this world that we might use the word passion for, but it's not worth suffering for. Like, it's not to be the word police or whatever, but that's not really, it's not the point, right? And so the guy on the podcast gave this illustration. He goes, there are mornings when I wake up and I'm tired, uh, I didn't sleep good, whatever the feeling. I don't love my wife, like I, I say I do, but like that morning I'm struggling. And he's like, and yet, if there came a time where it would be me to suffer for her, I would do it in a heartbeat. The kids have been driving me nuts all morning, and, and yet there was a, if something happened, it's like, hey, I need to suffer for them. Like, I would do it in a heartbeat. And, and listening to that podcast and studying First Thessalonians, I was like, that's, whatever he just said, I feel like that's what Paul's saying here. That you have such love for God and love for others that it's like, I'm willing to give up myself. I'm willing to give up my time. I'm willing to give up my resources. Like, I'm willing to just be... I will disadvantage myself so that, I, so that I can love you. Okay, so, so what is Paul saying, though? He's saying, I know that you're a church that loves. Why? Because it's been evidenced by, by how you lived it out. Right? It's not just been evidenced because you sing good songs. It's not just evidenced because you're good at shaking hands in the morning when people walk in. Like, no, it's evidenced by these works that you've done. So again, personally and corporately as a church, how are we doing at love? And if we don't say, hey, here's this labor, here's this moment of struggle and and pain might be too strong of a word, but that idea of toil and pain and struggle that we went through to help this family, to help that person, like like that should be part of our church. Paul's praising them for these things. The last one there in in verse 3, steadfastness of hope or this hope uh, in Jesus Christ that produces steadfastness. Okay, so so what does that look like? I, I heard this illustration recently. Again, I had nothing to do with church, but uh, there's a story that took place in World War II. Allied forces captured. They get sent to Japan for a prisoner of war camp. Uh, they, I don't, I tried to look up online. Not a whole lot of help there. Um, they were there for a while. I don't know what a while meant, but the guys said they were there for a while. And, and what they did is they actually built a radio with whatever resources they could find. And so they had to do it in secret, and, and they all huddle around the radio, and they turn on the radio, and they finally get it to work, and, and it works, and they pick up a BBC radio station that says, Japan loses, Allied forces win. 
Like there are guys who are ready to give up. There are guys who have been beaten and they feel like they can't continue. There's guys who just want to be done, like give up on everything. And the news that the Allied Forces won, the news that Japan has been defeated, the news that they will one day, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday in the near future, that they will be rescued to be taken home. Like they said, the morale of the whole group changed. Like I can, I can live as this prisoner of war for one more day. I can live as this prisoner of war for one more week. Like there's a day coming when, when some boat or, 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 or plane or Hummer or whatever it looks like with, the, with my country's flag on it is going to come rolling up here and I'm going home. And they're like, all of a sudden there's joy. Nothing, nothing changed. They're still getting beaten. The, the Japanese soldiers are still pretending like the war's going on. Like nothing has changed in their world as far as day to day, and yet because of the knowledge of what happened, they said the morale changed, there's joy, there's happiness, there's, there's eager, like all of this. Okay, what is Paul saying here? He's saying we have hope, hope not in ourselves, not hoping you got a good night's sleep, not hope that you ate enough kale this week, not hoping some person or some financial plan, like hope in who? In Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this hope, Greek word is confident expectation. Not just I hope my team wins. Not just I hope I have a good day. Like I'm confidently expectant. Like I'm 99% sure, even 100% sure, like this is going to happen. I have a hope. So here's this hope that I would have in Jesus. And spoiler alert of things coming, which can talk a lot about his second coming, talk a lot about Jesus coming back. So there's this hope that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus has already won. And so I get to go live this life. And he's coming back for me. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week. It might not be for a couple of years. But I know he's coming back. I know he's already won. So persecution? <laughs> I don't want to say this. But bring it. Like adversity? You got nothing. Because I know the end of the story. And the end of the story isn't that this church in Thessalonica would, would just go for, for a period of time and the people there would die and that would be the end of the story. No, the end of the story is they're at the feet of Jesus, worshiping forever. So Rome, Caesar, you want to you bring some persecution? Like, that's cool. We got it because we know the end of the story. But not only is there a hope in the end of the story, that means that I can live my life differently today. And what is Paul saying? He's saying that your hope, this church in Thessalonica, your hope has changed how you live today. It's not just some future thing that someday will make life better. It's saying, no, you made your life better today. And there's this endurance and there's this steadfastness. We look at the church, uh, believers, our world, let's just start with our world. Our world is so emotional. Like a good day, this coworker's like, yeah, man, he's great. A bad day with that coworker, it's like, oh, don't go near him. It's just a, this like roller coaster ride. And some level, what is Paul saying? He's saying that you are to be steadfast. You're to endure. Like your good days and your bad days aren't that big a deal because we understand what's coming at the end. Like no matter how good of the day, no matter how bad of the day, Jesus still wins. Jesus is still victorious. We still have eternity with him. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying to this young persecuted church that you have faith, you have love, and you have hope. And he's praising them for that. He's not just saying you have it because you, you wrote it on some sort of creed or some sort of sign on the door when you walk into Jason's house. Like, no, like you have it because it's been evidenced. Like you have lived it out and we can see it. Okay, so then the thought is, what do we do with this? Like, what do we do with, with these three things? Well, first of all, I think we pray. We pray, God, give us individually and give us as a church greater faith, greater love, and greater hope. 
Like, if we want these works that, that we're going to just leave as Christ-likeness and those things, like, we want that type of work. We want a love that, that goes and labors and suffers for others. We want some sort of hope that brings endurance and steadfastness where we don't give up. Like, like it's not just adding more, more work, labor, and steadfastness. It's adding more faith, hope, and love. And so we want to pray, God, give us those things. But again, at, the, at some level, uh, like the first one, work of faith, like at some level, we just stop and think, when's the last time we took a step of faith? Like, this is what we want God, we think God wants us to do, and a step of faith, we're going to step out and do it. Like, when's the last time that has been part of our lives as a church? When's the last time that was part of your life individually? I'm going to quote a pastor. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Heard a pastor say one time, when's the last time you did something stupid for God? And not that we would go do something foolish. But when's the last time that somebody who didn't know Jesus looked at someone who did know Jesus and say, wow, what you're doing is different and crazy, and, and why would you give up this for that? Why would you give up more money? Why would you give up that comfort? Why would you give up this reputation? Why would you give up whatever it is that, that you have now, and you give that all up for Jesus? Like, why in the world would you do that? And it's so easy to put on some sort of American Christianity where we just kind of, we don't fully fit in with the world, but we sure do look comfortable. And Paul's saying to this church, no, 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 you've stepped out in faith and it's been evident. You've, you've loved in such a way that it's evident. You've, you have this hope that it's been evident. And so for us, how has that been evident? Do we have this type of faith, love, and hope? Where's all this come from, though? Like this church doesn't just miraculously have faith, love, and hope, right? Where does it come from? Verse 4. Four and five, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. What do we see? Where did all this come from? It comes from the gospel. Like here's Jews, Greeks, and the leading women in their culture. They're sitting in a synagogue and they hear Paul preach and he says, here's Jesus, the one who died for you. Here's Jesus, the one who rose again for you. Here's Jesus who's going to come back someday. He is the Messiah. He's the one in the Old Testament. And what do they do? They believe. And they didn't just somewhat believe. They didn't just believe. Like, no, they, they put their life into this. Here's the gospel, and we're going we're gonna to live this. We're gonna, it's not just going to, last song that Joel sang. Joel's not even here. Last song Joel let us sing. Like, the gospel changes everything, and it's at work and changing me. Like, this church, the gospel changed them. They don't look like their culture anymore. They don't look like the people around them anymore. So, so what's going at work to them is, is they, they believed the gospel to the extent that it's changing their life. Skipped over verse 4. What do we see? This gospel that they believe. What, what is Paul reminding them of? He says, knowing. I think this is him just saying, let me remind you, brethren, uh, family of God, that you are what? You are beloved. You are loved by God. Like, like what is the reminder? What is, how do we know that God loves us? Again, verse 5, the gospel. Like, I can, I can go out and I can love somebody differently because I've experienced God's love. I can have some sort of self-sacrificing love. Why? Because I've seen it on the cross. I've experienced the love of Jesus. Verse 4, what else does he say? Not to make this controversial, but he talks about his choice of you. Like, God loves you. God chose you. How do you know that God chose you? Because you are in Christ. That word you there is plural. It's collective. It's you all. It's, we talked about that a lot in, in the study in Ephesians. It's God chose you, this group. So, so you think about it. 
Paul, because of the gospel, and explain the gospel. What, what do we see in verse 4? We understand that God loves you. Uh, so in spite of persecution, in spite of your failures, in spite of your shortcomings, God loves you. But not only that, but God chose you. And so here's this church that's just a few years after Jesus would ascend and go back to heaven. Like we're not talking hundreds of years. We're talking 20 years. Like here's this church that, that God says, in this time, in this city, in this place, I chose you. I chose you to build my kingdom. I chose you to be a light and salt in the community that you're in. Like, I chose you for a specific reason. Now go do it. And what is Paul saying? I think in verse 3, I think he's saying you're doing it. Like, the gospel has changed you so that you have some sort of different faith, you have different love, you have, you have different hope that's, that's brought about a change in your life. Okay, so, so what do we want more of? We want more faith and love and hope, but we don't want to just stop there. We want more of the reality of the gospel, and that is true. We want more of the reality that God does love me in spite of my shortcomings. Again, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I feel like we so often read somebody else's success as, as if they're different. Okay, can I, can I just sit, lovingly say this to the church in Thessalonica? There was full of broken people. There's the guy there that loved Greek culture and the guy there that probably hated Greek culture. There's probably rich, there's probably poor. There's probably a guy that was super excited about the Olympics coming up that year and a guy who hated it. Probably said it was of the devil. Right? There's, there's the person who maybe talks too much and the person who never talks at all. There's this guy who loves fashion, the guy who hates it. Like, like this church is made up of broken people who, who are different backgrounds, different stories, different upbringings. And what is Paul saying? He's saying God chose you, specifically chose you as a church to make a difference in that community. And what is Paul saying in verse 3? I think he's saying you're doing it. The gospel has come to you, it has changed you, and it is evident. So we want more faith, we want more hope, we want more love, but we want more gospel. We want to be reminded even more and more about how God loves us, in spite that we're broken. We want to be reminded more and more that God chose us, not just that not just he chose me, like he chose us. Like, he chose the gospel community. Like, this wasn't my idea. This is God's idea, right? So, so here's this choosing of, of, of gospel to community to be an outpost in Sarasota for his glory and his kingdom. And so what do we want? We want, uh, what do I want? I want this church here to look like the church here in Thessalonica. That if someone says, hey, have you heard of gospel community? They're like, man, those people love each other. Not, not only that, they love the people that anybody walks in the door. Not only that, they love their neighbors. Not only that, they love anybody they come in contact with. Man, that church, they're full of faith. Man, that church, they have hope. Like, that, they're different. Like, that's what we want, right? Where does it come from? It comes from the gospel. It comes from this knowledge of what Christ has done for us. So, in our small groups, and our discussion group, even this morning, may, may we be at work reminding ourselves of the gospel, of the truth of what Christ has done for us. And may that change us so that we have more faith, more love, and more hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the church in, in Thessalonica. Thank you for Paul's letter. Thank you that you preserve your word so that we might uh, learn and benefit and grow from it. God, this morning, I, I feel like our culture, American church culture, we so quickly throw out a word of persecution or churches under attack. And I'm not saying it's not. I, your church is probably always under attack in every culture. But God, I feel like the American church, just generally speaking, we don't have endurance. We don't have the steadfastness that says we're going we're gonna to grow the kingdom, we're going to do the work that you've called us to do in spite of any sort of persecution. 
God, thinking just generally of an American church, love is not probably one of the things we first think of. There's division. There's people in the same room that can't stand the person in that room. God, it's, it's easy to think of, of churches, generally speaking, that has very little faith, very little works that would say, we believe there's a God who created everything, who's called us to make disciples, and we're stepping out and doing something about it. And so, God, I pray. I pray that you increase our individual and corporate faith. I pray that you would increase our love. I pray that you would increase our hope. I pray that we would understand the gospel more and more. That's not about me. It's not my message. It's not my idea. That's, that's you. It's, it's your good news. It's, it's you that love me. It's you that died for us. It's you that have done everything. And so as we understand more of the gospel, we understand more of your love for us, you under, we understand more that, that you chose us for a specific purpose, for a specific reason, to, to glorify your name and to, to build your kingdom. So God, help us to do the work. Empower us, give us grace, help us not to shy away from work that you've given us, but help us to speak boldly for you and for your kingdom. Pray for our discussion group to come. I pray that you would give us wisdom as we would discuss this text this morning. I pray that we would uh, leave encouraged and um, excited to live for you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.